Most of Guy Morris's childhood felt helpless and hopeless. Later, while successful in his career, Guy hid chronic depression, hyperanxiety, and addiction for many years. From a homeless runaway at 13 to a 36-year Fortune 100 career to bringing awareness of the rapid advances of AI as it relates to cybersecurity and national security. This is going to be an exciting interview. Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. Guy Morris is now retired from a 36-year leadership career with Fortune 100 Software, high-tech, and global energy. And he was also a published songwriter for Disney Records. Wow, that's quite a switch. Screenplay writer for Sojourn Entertainment, a Coast Guard charter captain. This gets more and more interesting. A PADI diver, an adventurer, and now an author of Intelligent well researched thrillers. I am excited to hear the story that Guy Morris is going to share with you, us today. Welcome, Guy. Thank you, Carol. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's start with your backstory and share from your childhood, etc. What brought you to where you are? Uh, it's been an interesting journey. Um, one I wasn't sure I'd make a few times. Um, I, 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 try not to talk too much about the abuse, but I came from a, a severely abusive home, very dysfunctional. Um, I went to 16 schools before I dropped out of school in the early part of the 10th grade. Oh my word. My life was basically new kid um, and give me your money's flip flop. Mm. Um, after a very terrifying incident with a, a very abusive stepfather, which involved a gun, I ran away at 13. So I was a homeless yeah. runaway uh, for several months. Uh, I worked with migrant workers in order to survive. Uh, and, yeah. and while it was really intensely hard work, it taught me a lot about work ethics and yeah. respecting people of every culture and um, being independent and self-reliant. Uh, I went back to home briefly and, and um after my mom divorced my stepdad to get a GED, and but by the time I had, a, you know, I was 15, I had a GED and I left home for good. Uh, I was still functionally illiterate. Uh, having a GED turns out was more just paperwork than mm -hmm. education. And I worked all kinds of other low 
labor jobs, low wage jobs, nowhere jobs, 7-Elevens and construction workers and digging ditches and driving produce trucks and et cetera. I wound up joining a Christian commune in Tucson, Arizona, and that started me, that started giving me a foundation that somehow I could hope in something different. Hmm. And I wasn't even sure what that meant for me. I, I thought I would be a musician. I thought that was my best chance at making a life for myself. And when I was 19, I got the chance to go to college. I did, when I go and they accepted me, I swear my first thought was, oh my God, they'll accept any idiot. <laughs> um, <laughs> I thought college was for smart people and rich people. I said, boy, that, that blew that, that illusion. But I, I saw, nonetheless, I saw college as my chance to change my stars. Huh. And so I worked tirelessly and I do mean tirelessly I probably slept an average of about four hours sleep a night for five years to the point where I got sick toward the very end um, but I was determined to make something of myself and and I was at first I wasn't sure what that was I, I had to kind of stumble onto the things that I was good at economics finance uh, computer science and I graduated with multiple degrees I was at the top of the dean's list. I had a, I was given a full scholarship in Arizona wow. for grad school. I was accepted into the Harvard MBA program, and I caught the attention of the Federal Reserve because I had to graduate. I had to build a macroeconomic model that predicted the GNP and interest rates and unemployment. And my model outperformed the Federal Reserve and every other bank in the nation and changed how we do modeling to this day. Amazing. Um, well, I, I, I started my career then with IBM. Uh, I spent a few several years in high tech uh, manufacturing and uh, that end of the technology field. I then got wooed into a big oil company where I spent 13 years in finance operations, strategic planning, mergers and acquisitions. Um, environmental um, capital planning and got to see, you know, at the, at the time and still today, oil, most of us kind of discounted as kind of a dirty business, but oil, particularly in the um, 80s, um, ran the world. You know, it was uh, everything hinged on the oil price and, and products hinged on the oil price, transportation. And so it was an, um, an interesting view of the power dynamics and the politics that really can sway every country from the United States to Russia to Arabia to China. And uh, I got to do a lot of mergers and acquisitions and work with uh, op uh, the chief operating officer and num most of the other chief executives and, and VPs. And it was a tremendous experience until I kind of got my conscience pricked me and I had to leave the oil company. And my conscience pricked me really hard because I was actually, because of my environmental work in, in business, I was invited to be in the boardroom on the day when we presented some of our own scientist studies that um, talked about CO2 mission, emissions and the loss of um, uh -huh. um, ice in the North Sea and essentially early climate change research. And I got to witness firsthand when the chairman basically stood up and went into a fl flaming red face spittle finger pointing tirade um, threatening to fire anybody who brought up this again because this doesn't sell oil. I thought, you know, this this is not what I thought this would be. 
Um, and I was looking, you know, can, and you can imagine, I was really looking for something to feel legitimized. I, I was, I, I went from being a, an invisible homeless street kid. I, I wanted something that would make me feel honorable about my life. And I started realizing that oil and gas was not the place. So I, I left and I uh, got involved with uh, uh, some startup tech companies and then ultimately then moved into um, bigger tech companies with uh, IBM. Well, I actually took went with IBM early on, but then I went with Oracle and then Microsoft and spent a decade at Microsoft building their um, complex um, services capability and, their con and uh, winning their complex deal cap uh, capability. I started both of those programs and changed how Microsoft Services does business throughout the world. And um, retired from there about six years ago and became an author. And uh, this is my third act career. I love it because I get to stay intellectually involved in all of the latest technologies and artificial intelligence and politics and the world events. But I don't have to go to endless meetings okay. <laughs> uh, where everyone's saying the same thing. I don't have to deal with the politics. And it's been this my stress level has gone down and my enjoyment has gone up. Now, in the middle of that, I, I did because of my traumatic childhood, I did deal with a lot of addiction issues and hyper anxiety and chronic depression and a lot of social issues. And at the time, nobody understood post-traumatic stress. And so uh, every effort I tried to get to help me did incremental help, but never really saw it, went, got to the heart of the issue. And I didn't realize that I had comp what they call complex post-traumatic stress because of the multiple years of my childhood where I was constantly fearing for my life until my late 50s, to my mid-50s. And so that really started a transformation where I, that was one of the reasons I decided to retire early. While I was working in my career, I was also wanted to, I was a, a fan of men of the Renaissance who were always looking at not being an expert in just one thing, one field, but actually being well-rounded men. So they were men that were artistic, they were versed in science, they were versed in engineering, they were well-versed in politics and business um, and religion. And I wanted to reflect that. And so I was constantly doing creative projects. I lived in L.A. at the time. A lot of my friends were producers and actors and directors and writers. And so I got involved uh, in a number of projects, including um, some award-winning webisode series and, and a number of things. And, and I, I, got, I, I did a project for a friend because he wanted to start up an MTV type of channel for Nickelodeon. That tape wound up getting sent to Disney. And uh, I got a call from Disney one day. And I, honestly, I thought it was a prank. They said, well, we've got your tape. I said, I never sent you a tape. They said, no, no, we're looking at your tape right now. And I said, I've never sent you a tape. I said, who is this? Is this Jack? And there was my friend who was one of, the, one of my friends who liked the prank. He was a producer. And he said, no, this is Harold. And, 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 I, and we went back and forth for a couple of minutes. And then he read down the names of the songs. And I realized that my friend Jack, who had produced that record for actually sent the tape to Disney. So I, I worked for Disney for several years as a contract writer. And it was interesting. It was it was the ability for me to know that I could write on demand. So they would call you up sometimes on a Tuesday afternoon, say they had a project, they're going to fax over a theme sheet, and they wanted five, three to five songs by the next Tuesday. I would spend my evenings and my weekends when I wasn't working hard trying to basically write some songs and I got picked up several times and it was an interesting experience but ultimately I I had a really good high paying job and and that 
wasn't going to be a, a long-term kind of career thing. That's quite a vast career. In, in a nutshell. Now, you mentioned the Coast Guard license. I actually, um, when I divorced, when I, uh, because of my dysfunctions, I wound up getting divorced to my first wife. And I moved aboard a boat where I raised my son for many years. And um, it was a beautiful ship. It was uh, um, 49 feet overall. Um, it was, um, I basically rented it out for a couple of commercials and then Disney did an episode on it and I used to go do charters. I wanted to do charters to take people up the coast and out sailing on the weekends so I could help pay for the boat. And, and so in order to do it well and to do it right, I, uh, studied and I had been by the ocean and on the water and I was pretty bright. And so I, I basically was, I had spent so much time in the water that I qualified for the hours and I took the test and got a Coast Guard charter captain license. And so it was my official way of being able to be a Coast Guard, um, an approved charter captain that where people felt safe and, and secure. And actually, I was one of the few um, captains when they actually boarded my boat for an impromptu ex inspection on my way out of town with a bunch of guests. I was the only gold star that they had given to any charter um, in, in the last year. Do you think that you were in the right place at the right time to have such a you know, a change in from where you started to where you ended up? A little bit, perhaps. I, I think it was the willingness to, because I had, I had no hope to begin with, the willingness to take a chance on just about anything was better than not doing anything at Excellent. all. Excellent. And it was the willingness to say, I mean, to, to, to tell you the truth, I was terrified hmm. to go to college. Hmm absolutely shaking in my boots. I was functionally illiterate. I had to get my first wife's help just to fill in the application. I went through my first weeks of classes and I thought, oh my God, these kids are really smart. What the hell am I doing here? Again, I had few other options in life. I knew that it was this, it was do or die. And I think it was more that sense of desperation, that sense of not taking anything for granted taking every opportunity that I could. Uh, and there were some that I turned down out of fear that I regret. And those are my biggest regrets, not the things I did where maybe I had a chance to fail, but the things that I, I was afraid to do because I might fail. And it was always the might fails that I regretted. I think it was more the willingness to put myself out there and to not be afraid of hard work and to be willing to fail a little bit in the beginning until I could get it right. And to try to discover what my purpose was uh, because for the longest time I just didn't know. Basically what I'm hearing is that your desperation became your motivation. To a great extent, absolutely. And do you feel that that is a common scenario? Like if other people listen to this, are they relating to that part? I think if, if people who have felt um, oppressed, people who have felt abused, people who have felt hopeless, I, I think that could be a common thing, yes. Now, for me, working in Fortune 100 companies, I met a lot of privileged people, oh. uh, people who thought they deserved to be where they were because, you mm -hmm. know, my dad mm -hmm. was a senator or my dad was a CEO or my, you know, or I went to school at and I could, I never, I was never able to drink that Kool-Aid. <laughs> I was there because I worked twice as hard as everybody else and never could give up working twice as hard as everybody else because somehow in the back of my mind that little boy in me said if i don't keep outperforming they're going to find out that i'm not worthy 
I think that drove me for a very long time. Now, does it drive everybody? No, I, I knew a lot of people, hmm. my peers, where it was more about greed. Uh, it was more about power. And I never could relate to that. Um, my job was to do the best job I could and to be the best person that the company had and to outperform other people um, because otherwise they'd find out that I was just this poor kid that had problems. And and for most of for my entire career, not one business, I was able to let anybody know that I had issues with drinking and drugs and women and all these other issues because in that environment, you have to you have to play the role of being the intelligent, powerful, confident executive. And I got good at playing the role and then going home and breaking down at home. You know, I'm really glad I asked you that question. I think that explains a lot about different people, of course, that we, we both know, people that I've interviewed. And it just, it's a real eye-opener. So I thank you for that. We're going to talk about your your books, which I'm really excited about. And we are going to take a very quick 15 second break and when we come back we're going to hear about your exciting new career. Thank you. Carol Graham would like to show you the path from misery to miraculous triumph in her fast-paced memoir Battered Hope. She relates her determination to succeed as someone who experienced one horrendous nightmare after another. Gang raped and left for dead, loss of a child, husband falsely imprisoned, and cancer. Nothing could break her tenacity or faith. No matter what you face, heartache, loss, suffering, or injustice, Carol will illustrate how she became a victor the same way you can. The secret is to never, ever give up hope. Order your copy at Amazon or batteredhope.blogspot.com. Since Guy Morris's 2021 debut as an indie author, he has released three pulse-pounding, I love that, thrillers inspired by true stories, even better, actual technologies, true global politics, and history. Also, Swarm and The Last Ark are the first two books in a series that you're going to share with us. Mm-hmm. So, yes, this is the part that really intrigued me as I was reading over uh, your notes about artificial intelligence, cyber espionage, political corruption, climate, and world events and prophecy. <laughs> I, do bite, I do tend to bite off a lot. Real simple-minded <laughs> kind of guy. Um, so go for it. But, uh, yeah, when I when I retired, I, I, you know, I, w- the worst fear that I had about retirement is boredom. I, boredom is not my friend. I have a very dysfunctional relationship with leisure. Sitting around and watching TV for more than an hour or so mm-hmm. um, just gets me antsy in the creeps. It's like, okay, I'm wasting my life. I should go do something. The books gave me uh, a really incredible opportunity to really re uh, reinvent myself, stay as busy as I've ever been, work as hard as I've ever done, continue to do the research and obtain the, um, the the intellectual stimulation that I thrive on, but also give me a creative outlet that I also enjoyed as well. The inspiration, now the first book I wrote was actually The Curse of Cortez, not part of the AI series. Oh, okay. The Curse of Cortez took me, was a follow-on to a short story that I had written for my son when he was 12. And the sto- short story was called Paolo and the Shark. It was essentially an old man in the sea for a 12-year-old. But when I started writing the sequel, I wanted it based on something real. And so I like to do research. And and so I was researching and I stumbled onto a true story of 
Henry Morgan, who uh, abandoned a billion-dollar plunder along with uh, 600 souls and three ships that were never seen again. Then he went insane and burned his logbook so the world would never know why he had abandoned it. And it took me 12 years to research the history, the archaeology, and the Mayan mythology. And, of course, this was during my career, so it was part-time. Um, to understand how his insanity connected to events that led me all the way back to the origins of the Mayan creation myth. So that was my first book. But I had written for years, but it was mainly executive briefs, policy statements, PowerPoint slides, training documents, um, uh, per, uh, sales proposals, you know, enough, everything business. And so it was always a, a completely different form of writing. So when I finished, finally finished Cortez, I actually spent the money. It was somewhat expensive to hire a top-notch editor from Simon Schuster, who was now living in the area working for Amazon. And I asked her to, to I thought that I had a really great story, but I needed to polish my writing skills. And she was my master class. And I wanted her to rip it up and tear me a new one and then give me a map to how to stitch myself back together. God Bless the woman she did. <laughs> 44 single pages of typewritten notes. Um, oh all the, my I needed, the books I needed to read, the lessons I needed to take, the things I needed to change. Uh, and then every single page of the manuscript marked up. And when I first got her feedback, my first thought was, oh, Lord, I suck at this. <laughs> so I kept thinking I might need to rethink my retirement plans here. But after I stopped licking, it took me about a week to stop licking my wounds. I, I sat down and said, well, she did exactly what I asked her to do. So I thanked her and I got to work. And that book was um, listed on BookTrib, which is Barnes & Noble's reader uh, community, uh -huh. listed on BookTrib's favorite 25 books of 2021. Oh, my word. <laughs> Jones meets Da Vinci Code. It's an amazing, fun story. My, it's uh, one of my most popular books. I sell more of those at my signing events than any others. What was the name of it again? The Curse of Cortez. Okay. Now, this, the other two books, though, actually started out of, there was a, a distinct inspiration for those two books. And the first one was when I discovered, and those are the artificial intelligence, political, religious, corruption books with an underlying theme of prophecy. And, and it started when I discovered that a program had escaped the NSA spy labs at Sandia. It wasn't lost, wasn't stolen, it wasn't broken. The word, there was a tiny, tiny um, two-paragraph, very two short-paragraph article in the back of a science magazine alluded to it, and the word they used escaped. When I, so I spent almost a year, I was obsessed with that. I said, that's, that's either a typo by the, the publisher, or that's a okay. slip by the laboratory. And I was going to determine whether or not it could even be viable. And so I spent a year trying to work out the architecture for how a spy program could escape the NSA. And then once I had a plausible scenario for that, I said, well, what did they want this program to do that it needed that unusual, specially designed super tech? And then I, I worked that out and I created the webisode series I mentioned earlier. I basically created a webisode series about this escaped program and an underground group that became sort of a, um, a prototype for the anonymous underground hacker group um, and published a webisode series about it. It was hugely popular. We crashed the server several times. We had uh, fans all over the world, including at NASA. Actually, the f director of flight operations for the Houston Space Center was one of my biggest fans. 
and we got optioned by one of the studios. And uh, uh, two weeks before the option was going to be signed and we'd go in production, two FBI agents showed up at my door. Really upset that I had figured out something they thought was supposed to be oh. top secret. I, on the other hand, was giddy. <laughs> they not What bothered them more than me knowing something I wasn't supposed to know and talking about it was my snarky attitude. Yes, I did it. I figured it out. Oh, come on. Admit it, boys. You wouldn't be here if I was wrong. I said, oh, this is so cool. I can't wait to tell all of my friends. Oh, my word. They, they went pale. They looked at each other uh, as if that wasn't the response they were th expecting. And I got the we are not amused speech. And then my wife came home, pulls me aside. Honey, there's two FBI agents in our dining room. I'm pretty sure it's not a social call. What <laughs> did you do? I, at that moment, it was really that night, I thought to myself afterwards, after they, and, and they, they, were, they wanted me to take down the webisode series. I told them, no, I hadn't broken any laws. They couldn't bust me for being a smart ass. Um, and they went to the studio and killed the deal. So I wound up, but at that point, and, and when after they left, I thought, I've got to write a book about this yeah. or something. I said, there's a, there's a story here beyond the webisode series I had created that I think needs to be told. So after they killed the deal with the studio, I tucked my, lost some money, but I tucked my tail between my legs and I went, I think I, I can't remember if I went to join another startup at that point or I went back to Oracle. But it, the, that experience never left me. The other P inspiration that came for the book series was uh, actually uh, I'm a I'm a Christian and I've, I've listened to people talk about prophecies for a long time. I, when I was a young boy, I read the Left Behind series, and even through all of those things, I've always determined in my analytical, obsessive, not trusting hmm. Thomas, doubting Thomas kind of mind that there were biases involved in their teachings. They, hmm. they, they were getting things wrong. They were trying to interpret things they didn't really understand because they're based on some of the allegories. Uh, some of the ways that they would interpret things was based on cultural biases and religious biases and nationalistic patriotic biases and uh, even racial biases and, and, and things, you know, it's the Protestants against the Pope. He's the Antichrist. Uh -huh. It's the Christians against the uh, Islam. The Ayatollah is the Antichrist. And it was all these left versus right and him versus, and I, and I thought that's not the point of what we're, this is saying at all. But I, I was always looking for that hook of objectivity, thing that could turn what seemed very opaque to a lot of people to help make it clear. And I stumbled on it by accident. It, I was actually reading a National Geographic article, and the article was dealing with, and I, I read lots of environmental uh, issues because of my experience at the oil company and my background. And so I was reading this one article, and it had to do with the loss of fish stocks all around the world, China, Asia, you know, Europe, um, um, Latin America, America, everywhere. The fish stocks were all down by 30% or more. Something triggered in me, and I remembered a prophecy called the Seven Trumpets out of Revelation that talked about an allegory that the flaming rock would fall from the sky and land in the ocean, and then the outcome would be a third of the fish of the sea would die, a third of the birds of the air would die, two thirds of the, a third of the beasts of the land would die, and two thirds of the rivers of the earth would be so polluted you couldn't drink from them. Well, I had been involved in environmental studies and realized that we were, we're already, there's several books talking about the sixth extinction. There's dozens of books talking about the level of pollution and, and, and rivers around the world. And I realized, wait a minute, there was no flaming rock. The allegory was meaningless. The outcome was meaningful. And so I started saying, I wonder if I could calculate, I'm a computer model. I built 
models for the Federal Reserve. I built economic models. I built forecast models for businesses, scientific models. So I said, I wonder if I could model this. And so I actually, I gathered up, went to the libraries and got some publications and brought back a lot of data sources that I could use. And I looked up, I didn't want to do too many. I just wanted to see, give a test drive of maybe 20, 20 different prophecies. And I actually built a model that tried to correlate actual events to ancient prophecies and calculating the probability of these things happening at any time uh, during human or known geologic history. And what's the cumulative probability of these things? What's the correlation to prophecies? And what's the regression model say can suggest what might come next? So I spent four days over a long weekend, holiday weekend, doing this because I didn't have any money. I wasn't dating and my son was at my ex-wife's. Um, and so I came out, the, the model basically came out with a conclusion of 1.4 trillion to one huh. that we had entered into prophetic times. And I thought at the time that, well, I've either made a math error somewhere, maybe I did some data input error somewhere, or this is telling me something I need to pay attention to. And I thought, even if I'm off by a factor of a thousand, that's still an enormously large number. And that revelation started changing my view of the world, my, my understanding of different news events and politics. And so I started looking at things with a different viewpoint. I started deprioritizing my career over other things. And those two uh, real incidents led to the development of the series Swarm, The Last Ark, and, and the series. Now, in Swarm, you're going to, the program that escaped is now a featured character in the story. You'll also learn about real um, lethal autonomous weapons that Dartha, DARPA is working on right now in the Nevada desert that basically weaponizes drone swarms. Um, I talk about the real issues of cybersecurity, national defense, ransomware, the 4 billion identities that have been hacked over the last 10 years, and how those could be used to be weaponized uh, by China or Russia. And I started kind of, uh, I'm a, as a thriller writer, one of your jobs is to basically find real issues in the world and then basically come up with a fictional scenario to say, gee, what could go wrong? And right at the time I was finishing, the I started the book in 2019. I was finishing up, I finished it right before the 2020 election. And so there was a lot of, we had pandemics and we had political upheaval. Um, and um, it was, there was a lot of fodder uh, for me to work from. And I started saying, I'm going, to, I'm going to root my stories in the real things going on, not make the story about those things per uh -huh. se, because I didn't uh -huh. want to get sued by anybody. Um, but though that was sort of the background noise, the, the environmental situation upon which I could build my, my, my stories. And so every book is basically saturated with factual information, um, real technologies, real politics, real issues. And I'm trying to speculate and try to draw the correlation between what's going on that could relate back to um, some of these um, ancient prophecies, but do it without going into dogma and doctrine and trying to uh, um, evangelize, right? Just do it as a way of getting people to think more, um, to be more thoughtful about what's going on and to hopefully um, bring up um, constructive dialogues. And uh, both books have won awards. Um, Swarm won the Reader's Favorite Gold Award two years ago. Um, the Last Arc just won the Reader's Favorite Silver Award. I was down in Miami last week or a couple weeks ago for the ceremony. And so both have been recognized. Uh, Swarm was also a finalist for Book of the Year with the IAN Network. 
And so both books have been giving getting rave reviews, unless somebody doesn't like the politics, which is like very, very minor number of people. Um, and I think it, I just was talking, I was at a signing event this weekend where uh, a reader had read one of the books and was so inspired by the thoughtfulness and the things, issues that I was bringing up that he just, he was dying to read the next one. And so um, it's been a, a, a real good, it's been a testing journey for me because I'm trying to present things. I, the main pr premise is it's got to be a really well-written, fun story to read. It can't be overly dystopic. It can't be dis, uh, overly techy. It's got to engage people almost like a James Bond meets a Mission Impossible with the savvy of an Elon Musk. And um, but with wit, you know, the James Bond kind of tongue in cheek right. kind of wit and um, sarcasm. And so um, it's been a great amount of fun. Um, and so the last arc kind of paints uh, introduces or the swarm kind of introduces all the characters in the last arc. I went into more of a, one of the more religious themes and it deals with two arcs of the covenant that still exist today. Um, both of them have deep historical traditions and foundations for them. Both of them uh, came out of Israel, were used in temple worship, and both came to light in the last three to six years in news stories never covered in the U.S. or American press. And the fact that that these were, to, again, it was probabilities that how these two things would basically come to light right at this particular time uh, was interesting for me. So I, I researched them more. I researched the archaeology uh, and architecture of the Temple Mount, and I discovered that there was a Freemason Illuminati temple hidden in plain sight in the heart of Israel. Uh, it, it, I just learned so much. I learned about a Saudi crown prince who considers himself the Islamic Messiah called the Mahdi and how that plays into all of these things. And so it just created such an incredibly rich story for me that I, it was one of those stories where I just, I, I couldn't help but write it. Um, and so it's an amazing story of, of the Middle East and, and Third Temple and, and a potential peace deal that could go wrong and how it could go wrong. And I even throw in a fictional former U.S. president who's under, flees to Arabia for asylum because he's under criminal uh, prosecution. So not that that could ever happen, but um, it becomes it. It was a great story for me, and uh, I loved writing it. And it, it, that one uh, is one I think actually get higher reviews, ratings on that one, and Goodreads and uh, Amazon than than any of the other books. What's next? Well, I'm working on next the next the next version of the series is going to be dealing with, and this is something I've been trying to I've been building up the pieces for uh, for the last first two books to talk about artificial intelligence how that relates to quantum computing, and I get really simple. I, I keep it really simple so I don't lose my reader. Right. Uh, and But it's really going to start dealing with the super intelligence that's probably about 12 months away, and then the conscious, sentient super intelligence that's probably 24 to 36 months away, and how that could impact the next election, how it could impact international banking, how it could impact jobs and the economies, how it could throw the world in um, kind of a tizzy. Within the background, we'll have the Ukraine and the Israeli wars that are going to, that I don't really see any, either one of them ending anytime soon. What could potentially happen if through those scenarios? So it, it deals with a lot of real deep issues um, from that perspective. And our my hero has to go through a soul search, a, a, a deep kind of um, 
reconciliation to his life um, and uh, the co-protagonist which is a the admiral's daughter a former intelligence officer uh, navy lieutenant uh, named jen scott um, she's got to go through a similar kind of so it's going to be some soul searching from the part of the main characters to try and figure out what's going on and how and what really matters to them in their life um, and um, and so there's a, there's always personal elements that go along with these stories um, the main character in the series was is actually is a genius hacker. Tech, he's got super technology guy, but he's was a foster child. Uh, his parents died in a murder suicide when he was five or six, and he's got a lot of trauma himself. And he's been living for the last twenty years under the name of a, a best friend who died in an explosion that was meant for him after he had hacked a Bilderberg Illuminati server. And his best friend was died died in the explosion um, while he was cheating on the main character with the main character's fiance. So both of them died. So he's carried that guilt and that that burden for all these years. And so um, he's got to deal with some of his past in the in, in the next book. And so there's a lot of emotional issues. There, I bring in traumas. I bring in um, uh, people who are religious, people who are non-religious. I bring in multiple faiths. Um, I try to kind of bring it, make it as realistic and as balanced as I can. Even in the politics, uh, some one book I might take harder swipes at the right. The next book I might take some more swipes at the left. Uh, it's not about the left or the right. It's about um, mm-hmm. the, kind of the state that we're all right, right. How the conflict between the two are basically leading us into um, trouble. And so it's um, I'm trying to reflect the real world in, but in very exciting ways and with Page Turner kind of plot. And to talk about some of the new technologies that are coming down, how they work, why they work, and why we should be afraid. I think page turner is an understatement. Your research is so impressive, and I appreciate that you have done the research and not just writing a fictional story. And I thank you for sharing all of that. Now, what is the Author Event Network? And when I first became an author, I made the decision for a number of reasons that I was just going to self-publish because when I, even with the major publishers, their main job is to get editors, to um, get this book cover designers, to do the initial printing and the publishing, all the physical stuff. Now, the one thing they can do that most authors can't do, indie authors can't do, is broad distribution in bookstores. But since that's about 20% of the market, I thought I could basically start with the 80% at the top and, and work down from there. Um, but I had been building major projects my whole life. So I, I knew how to go out and find great editors. I knew uh-huh. how to take uh-huh. advice. I knew how to get good designers. My designer comes from Cardiff, England. I mean, I've traveled. I've, and so I knew how to I, I knew I could produce high quality books, um, but I wanted to own the distribution. But at the same time, getting noticed um, even the the top publishing houses won't do once they do the initial kind of eat blast out in the first month um, and maybe they get you a review in the mm-hmm. New York Times which I could do as well if I want to pay for it you're as an author you're pretty much on your own for promotion and marketing right. and but instead of 70% of the royalties you're down to like 10% right and so I thought, you know, I'm a business guy. Uh, I can do most of this myself if I figure it. If I, I can learn this business, even though I'm not a, I'm not an expert now, I'll, I'll learn. I decided to go that route. And so when I first started coming out, it was, it's really hard to find good promotions online that re- provide a return on the investment. 
I, if I was going to spend $100 on a promotion, I wanted to get at least $101 back in terms of royalty, yeah. not book sales, but royalties. And so when I wasn't finding a lot of good opportunities online, I stumbled actually onto uh, somebody invited me to a local uh, festival um, called the Blackberry Festival. And I realized that there were and I when I first launched the book, I had done some Barnes and Noble book signings and I you know, did really well. I sold out their inventory that they had for the signing and then had some back orders on top of that. And they invited me back, but they would invite. They wanted to invite me back when I had the next book. I said, well, that's going to be a year and a half away. Yeah. I said, Great, I want to do this again. And so I, I was looking for opportunities to do more signings. And I stumbled when I went to this festival. I realized, wait a minute, there were 500 people in that Barnes and Noble that afternoon. I just got went to this festival where there were 50,000 people. And I thought, wait a minute, there's a market here. So the Author Event Network is a legal association. It's a nonprofit. And what we do is we collect real other local authors like myself that are uh, accomplished, award-winning, bestsellers, and we share booth space at festivals, fairs, and events throughout the region. I have a chapter now. We started off a couple of years ago. We now have a chapter in Seattle and a chapter in Portland. And this past year, uh, was we're just starting to kind of get into our own stride. We were busy at an event every single weekend uh, and either from one up to four or five days that weekend um, from the beginning of May through the middle of October. Next year, we'll probably be starting in April. And then and we've also been doing a few holiday markets. So we'll probably start in April and go through December next year. And so it's a way of meeting new readers, uh, engaging people about the stories behind my books without going into the plots themselves, similar to what I, the conversations we're having. Um, and and help other authors find readers and and sell more books and earn high margins because we're buying at our print cost and selling at retail, which allows us to make the best. I'm not giving most of my money to Amazon or the exactly. bookstore. Exactly, yeah. And um, Bezos has enough rockets. He's, he'll be okay. Um, and so it's been great. It's built a really great community of, uh, of very talented authors, and it's been fun to share the, the space with them. And by having... 10 or 20 feet of all local authors willing to tell you, engage with you and sign their book uh, on a personalized assigned copy of their book. It makes a unique offering. You go to these festivals and you'll see candies and, and jams and honey and spices and jewelry and <laughs> clothing and art and crafts and woodworking and all kinds of things. But we're almost always one of the very, very few tents where you can find a talented local author and find your next favorite um, book. Oh, that's and, cool. And get a signed copy. Yes. And so, as I said, I had I every time I do an event now, I'm, now that we've done this two or three years, I'm, we're get, we often, very often, we get people coming to an event saying, "Oh, I saw you at this other event. I bought your." book one of your books i said well what'd you think they said i loved it i said well there's two more would you you know and, and exactly. i oftentimes will get yeah. it allows them to kind of build that relationship with the author well we covered a lot of territory my sure goodness did. so in summary what message do you have for the audience keep watch things are happening in the world and they're going to happen at a at a more rapid pace they're going to be dramatic mm -hmm. they're going to be scary that doesn't necessarily mean we need to be dystopic. Our life is really not about what happens outside of us, but about what we take with us inside. And it's good to be aware. 
and because awareness with that level of faith doesn't breed fear, it breeds hope and it breeds confidence. And if you know that these prophecies are coming true in that sense, you can have confidence that it's no, the world is not going to continue to deteriorate forever. And I tell everybody, I said, aren't you afraid? I said, no, I, I, I'm, I'm in my late 60s. I, I, I have an expiration date. I don't know when. I don't know how. I don't know where. But I do. I know I, I know I have one. And it's not about how we, we pass away and how things end. It's about how we live each day. And focus on that. Focus on learning. Focus on growing. Focus on not letting your past to define your future. Um, focus on those things that you can control and make that as good, as positive, as loving, as, as accepting, as warm as you can. Um, and all these other things are going to happen. You don't need to make them the center of who you are and how you live. Those were incredible and encouraging words. That really sums it up perfectly. I thank you so much, Guy for being you, on girl. Never Ever Give Up Hope. And this is a definitely an interview that we need to listen to more than once. I look forward to hearing about your next book as well. In a couple years, you must come back. So again, Absolutely. thank you. Thank you, Carol. Been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.